Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, some of the most popular TV shows are those shows with attorneys and courtroom scenes, whether it's back in the 50s and 60s. For some of you, Perry Mason was the big show, and for others, it's L.A. Law or Boston Legal or Law and Order. We seem to love those exchanges between attorneys and, and uh, defendants and cross-examination, evidence being being uh, exhibited and verdicts being rendered. We seem to love that, that drama and intensity. Well, this text kind of invites us into a, a courtroom scene, but it's not a drama. It's picturing God on the bench and we, humanity, in the dock. The dock is a British term for the place where a prisoner would remain during the trial, silent, accountable to the judge. That's the picture we have here. Now, you, you know where we started in Romans? It started on a much lighter note, didn't it? Paul's excited to come visit the Roman church. He hadn't met him before, presumably, and he wanted to come and, and to share the gospel. He was eager to preach the gospel to them, the gospel which is the power of God to save. The, the power of God, the righteousness revealed in Christ, the power to save. He's excited to share. And, and that was in verse 17 of chapter 1. And then he begins in chapter 1, verse 18, with this long, lengthy argument about the nature of sin, all the way up through 320. And if you remember how it goes, not only was the righteousness of God revealed in Christ, which he is excited but the wrath of God was also revealed. And he showed how, how God, from creation, has made clearly visible his eternal power, his divine glory, his beautiful attributes. But humanity rejected God. We turned our own way. We didn't honor him. We weren't grateful to him. And so God gave us over, as it were. And then he begins that that kind of downward spiral of humanity, looking at the Gentiles in the, first, in the second half of chapter 1, the Gentiles marked by you know, hedonism and sexual license, licentiousness, personal autonomy, what the Bible calls unrighteousness and ungodliness. 
And you can imagine the Jewish part of that group kind of snickering a little bit. Yeah, give it to them, God. Let them, let them have it. They deserve it. And then he turns right to them in chapter 2. And he moves towards them over their moralism. They weren't trusting in God for the gospel. They were trusting in their own pedigree that they were chosen, that they were the, the people of God. They had the law. They had the temple. They had the rituals. That's all they needed. I was in the right group at the right time. I'm in good shape. And Paul says, you too are without excuse. So what Paul's doing here in these, in these first number of chapters, he's, he's saying to the hedonist, and he's talking to the moralist. He's talking to the unrighteous and the self-righteous. He's talking to the Greek and the Jew. He's saying all of humanity is under sin. All of humanity. There are none that escape. All of us. The scene... Paul makes a charge in verse 9. This is the first point he makes. In verse 9, he's going to charge us with guilt of being under sin. And then he moves to the second point. Like an attorney, he presents evidence from 10 to 18. He's presenting proof. He's giving the effect of sin. Hey, I'm going to prove to you you're under sin. And we're going to see that in 10 to 18. And then in 19 to 21, he renders a verdict. We listen for the verdict. Guilty is charged. So we move just as it were in a, in a trial. Now remember, uh, Paul is speaking, he's speaking to the nature of humanity. You know, the Bible is a book of theology. It teaches us about God. It's also a book of anthropology. It teaches us about us. And so he's speaking to all of us here. So so while some may be Christian, some may not be Christian, he's speaking to the people, to society at large, and then we'll bear down to how it applies to the Christian and the non-Christian as we go through it. But let's look first at the charge. In, in verse 9, there's a charge that he gives. And, and you see that he begins saying, what then, are we Jews any better off? Now there's all kinds of theological debate and some translation debate about who is he speaking? Is he speaking for himself? How does this relate to chapter 3, verse 3? When he talks about the advantages of Jews. And, and it's a great discussion to have if we had more time. But he kind of sums it up at the end of verse 9. He makes it clear. He says, no, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You know, the Jews and Greeks, you remember, if, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're just piled in with the Greeks and the Gentiles. So it's an expression for the totality of humanity. Jews and Greeks are all charged as under sin. Now, if you wonder, this idea of under sin, just real quick, look with me in 10, 11, and 12, because he says there, none is righteous, no, not one. And like a hammer, I want you to feel like a hammer is pounding a nail in this very, very dense board, because that's what he's doing. He's pounding these truths into us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, it's like a big net that has been thrown over and has caught all of us up in it. That none are righteous. I mean, but I want you to notice we're under sin, is what he says. That's what the charge is. We're guilty. We're under sin. He doesn't say sins in the plural as if he's worried about breaking this law or that law, he's saying we're under sin. 
He's personifying sin like a tyrant or a master ruling over us. Under sin, is like we're under this dominating power. We're slaves. We're subject to it. We're bound to it. There's a weight, you know, that you feel that you're under sin is what he's saying. This is called the doctrine of depravity. Doctrine of depravity. It's this. Uh, depravity isn't this idea that in degree that everybody is as wicked as they can be. It speaks more to the extent of sin, that, that it is pervasive, affecting all of us at every part of us. Maybe not to the same degree, but it's really speaking to the fact that by nature we are sinners. By nature. It, it comes natural to us. It's easy for me to sin. I cannot not sin. It's, it's part of us. You know, as Sproul says, he says that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners to the core. That's who we are. That's what Paul's charging us with, that all of humanity. There are no exceptions here. We're all caught up in this charge. You know, when I came to faith, uh, early when I came to faith, um, I was taught an illustration of trying to understand depravity. And uh, while all illustrations tend to break down, if you press them hard enough, um, this one might help a little bit in the sense that if you imagine three swimmers on some beach in California and they want to make it to Hawaii and you have a new swimmer and you have an experienced swimmer and you have an Olympian and they all leave the beach at the same time, maybe the new swimmer might make it 100, maybe 500, maybe 1,000 yards. The experienced swimmer may make it 2 or 3 miles. The Olympian, maybe he goes 10 or 20. There's a vast difference between those swimmers, no doubt. But they're all the same in the sense that nobody's going to make it there. What Paul's saying here is we're all under sin. Nobody can appeal to God. Nobody can be reconciled to God in their own ability. In fact, we talk much in this world about unity of the world. This is where our unity is in the world. We are all united in being charged under sin. I was helped by this. One author that gave word to it, he says, the supreme irony of the human situation in every age is that the one thing, the only thing, in which all mankind is concretely at one is sin. And the, the irrational paradox of it is that it makes any other sort of unity impossible. The unity for which men strive in various ways is always being negated by the unity for which they never need to strive. We're all under sin. Now, I know this is a bit of a challenge to embrace this doctrine of depravity. I get it. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist, started out as kind of a left-wing socialist, then he went and lived in Moscow for a while. He became a little more politically conservative, ended up becoming a Christian, and here's what he said about the doctrine of depravity. He says, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. We just don't want to believe it. We fight it. We deny it. We don't want to think we're that bad. It's counterintuitive to us. I'm a good person. We just struggle understanding this. Why? Why do we have such trouble when the evidence is strewn all around us? Well, I think particularly in our culture, we have 
redefine sin. We, we've, we've changed the terms. And we do it in various ways. Some of us think more superficially about sin. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. And so I'm, I'm good on the Sixth Commandment. I'm good. We don't think about that we've hated people. Or having, I've been supping with another woman, so I'm good on the Seventh Commandment. I haven't committed adultery, but maybe we haven't considered all the lusting that we have done towards a woman. We think superficially. We, we don't internalize the law. We, we keep it at arm's length, and that way we can feel, I think we're okay. Uh, others of us are, are more comparative in terms of looking at sin. We compare ourselves to other people. As long as there's somebody else that worse than I am, or if I can get a bunch of people that are worse than me, then I feel competitively better. I mean, as long as the, as long as the lump of people are over there, then I'm good. It kind of works like that joke about the two guys in the forest walking and they see the bear. You, know, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than the other guy. And, and, then, and then you're in good shape. And that's the way we feel. You know, if, if I'm better than all these other people, then somehow I'm going to be okay. Another way that we, we deny or we resist this truth that Paul is charging us, charging us with is we look at sin horizontally. We only look at that it affects other people. Uh, we, we don't see that there's a vertical dimension to our sin, that God is actually affected, that God is offended by our sin. But we just look horizontally. Now, David Wells, a teacher of mine in seminary, wrote a book called Losing Our Moral Virtue. He talks about the word sin kind of being displaced from North American vocabulary around the turn of the 20th century. He says, we began living in a windowless world. We didn't have any understanding of the transcendent. We didn't think about God as much in life. And so we began redefining sin as evil. It doesn't have the same moral overtones. God's not part of evil. Evil is kind of this abstract issue. Or, or we define it as crime, or we define it as disease. But we don't call it what we used to call it, which is sin. Now, even if you don't fully agree with me, and, and you struggle with this issue, and you maybe even want to deny the doctrine of depravity, what do you do with all the evidence of it? I mean, what do you do with... We know things are not the way that things are supposed to be. We know that. We see the wreckage, we see the carnage of relationships and people. What do you do with what's going on in our own culture? How do we handle that? We have to do something. If you don't identify the problem correctly, you're going to have trouble finding a solution. You know, the doctor that can't give a good diagnosis, there isn't much hope for a good prognosis. So you've got to define the problem. Now, the world knows that the world has problems. We're trying to do stuff. The world has options. What are some of the options that the world does to this charging of being under sin and all the empirical evidence? Well, we want to throw education at it. We want to educate people. I'm a, I'm a fan for education. I am. But we think that we can teach people and educate them beyond this being under sin. We'll have a more peaceful community. We'll have a more loving world if we educate people. But has, does that really work? I mean, all the warnings of smoking, right there on the box even, people still smoke. All the warnings to those who have heart issues to lose weight, to get in better shape, less than half obey their doctors. 
Over, you know, C.S. Lewis makes the point that you know, what education does is just make us smart sinners. That's what it does. Others want to look more at socialism. You know, redistribution of wealth. If we, just, if we just share things more, if we give people things more, more things to people, and kind of make the playing field level, uh, then, then our world will be better. If you've ever read Animal Farm by George Orwell, it's a great book. I've read it a number of times. It's written wonderfully, but it was written regard to socialism and communism. And, and the issue that, um, of course, there's the farmer and there's the animals, and the story goes that the animals kind of have a little bit of revolt, throw the farmer off, and, and a bunch of pigs kind of end up taking over the place. But, but the takeaway of Animal Farm is all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. That's what happens with socialism. I mean, greed's still there. The desire to have power and things is still there. This charge of being under sin isn't relieved. Of course, we have positivism, and we have optimism, both in Oprah and Joel Osteen. It comes in a non-religious or semi-religious and religious fashion. We're just going to think better about life and we'll be better seems to fly in the face of this. Again, Lewis, C.S. Lewis gives us some encouragement. He says, a recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad until we feel this assumption of his to be true. Though we are part of the world he came to serve, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. So we, we have to move back to understanding the nature of what does it mean to be under sin? We'll never understand the gospel. So how do you feel? Do, do you believe this to be true? Do you think that you're under sin? Do you feel that you're displaced from God? Do you feel that the burden of sin has been put upon you? Or do you feel that you're better than others? Honestly, do you feel that you're better than others? When you look at your life, maybe your wealth, your station, maybe your education, maybe your gender, maybe your race, maybe your moral standings, maybe the positions you take on social issues, maybe your theological paradigm, do you think you're better than others? Here's the mark of the Christian. Uh, the Christian is walking in massive humility because he understands that he has been under sin. And it is only by the sheer grace of God that has opened his eyes, that has unmasked his sinfulness so that he can see his need for a Savior. The Christian is amazingly humble, or ought to be. The Christian is amazingly grateful because the Christian knows that he has been delivered. He didn't discover the gospel. The secrets of the kingdom were made known to him by the sheer grace of God. And he is grateful to God that he has something now that he did not deserve. And he's not getting something that he really did deserve. And so he is very grateful. And then the Christian is bold. Bold in wanting. Especially to those closest near him to help declare this truth. That, that, that people are under sin even ignorantly. And that God is making his appeal through us, declaring to them what his spirit has made known to us. 
humble. Do you think our church's culture is marked by this? Do you think that we as a church, collectively, that we kind of, if you will, emit or exude a degree of humility? Do we walk with humble hearts? Do you think we're grateful as a people? If people were to come in, do they see us as a joy-filled people who have literally been delivered from the edge? Do they see us as a bold people? Would they see us taking opportunities and praying for those that are under sin as we once were? Do they see that? You know, when we pray up here, as Joel prayed, and <clears throat> we, we want people, you know, we encourage those who pray to pray in a certain way. Uh, we're not trying to be dogmatic. We're trying to be exampling. You, you hear him give thanks to God for God's glory. You hear words of worship of the greatness of God, which, which lead us to, to confess our sins, to humble ourselves before God, to then seek him for grace, and that his name might be going out in the world. That's, that's why we pray. We're trying to pray for this. Would you join me in praying for us that as a church we would walk this out? That as Christians here, we would walk this, we would seek to be humble. We would be grateful people. And that we would be increasingly bold in our witness. So that's the charge in verse 9, that we're all under sin. Now, here's what Paul does in 10 to 18. He now brings the evidence. Exhibit A, he's going to present as to why we are under sin, the effects of sin. He, he's showing us, he's making his point. And I want to look at this in two buckets here. I want to look at this as a, a failure to love God, and we're going to see that in 10 to 12, and, and a failure to love our neighbor. These are the examples that Paul brings up. You know, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We break both of those. That's the evidence that we're under sin. So here he's, he's proving his point now, that we have failed to love God. And what Paul does here is like a string of pearls. He just draws Old Testament scriptures, primarily from the Psalms, one from Proverbs, Isaiah uh, 53, Isaiah 59 is in there, Jeremiah is in there. But, but, but he strings these up like pearls to make his point. And, and as I said, like the blow of a hammer, he lays one out after another. And so his evidence, the proof that he marshals, is that we fail to love God. Look with me at 10 through 12. And I just want to go through them briefly. He says, none is righteous, not one. Now, I want you to say here, he's not saying, he's not speaking to us about how we feel. And this word righteousness is a very pregnant term through the book of Romans, as we've already learned. It's a positional word. It's a word of being right with God. So just shorten the word. Are you right with God? He's saying nobody is rightly aligned with God. We've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. We're not rightly re related to him. We're at odds with God, is what he's saying. And many of us may not feel that way. We, may, we got nothing, I got nothing against God. That's not what Paul's saying. From God's perspective, there's not one that is rightly related to me in his own natural abilities. He goes on, he says, no one understands. Now, he's not speaking here about our mental incapacity or, or we can't think transcendent thoughts. He's saying that no one truly understands the greatness of God. He's already told us back in chapter 1, our hearts are darkened. 
that, that our thinking is futile. <clears throat> How many times do you hear someone say, well, I think God is like, you know, and, and we just come up with theological axioms, this is what I think God's like. And, and our, our minds are darkened. He said, no one truly understands God for who God is in his absolute glory, in their own discovering. God's revealed himself to us. We can know God truly, but not fully, but we can know him truly, but that's God revealing himself. No one understands on their own merit or by their own inspection or, or discovery. He says no one seeks God. Now, I know many of you want to stop and say, hold it now, we know that people seek God. I mean, uh, Muslims seek God, Hindus seek God. I have a friend who's on a spiritual quest right now. I, I don't think he's saying that nobody is seeking after something from God. Nobody seeks God to be God in their life, in their own power. <clears throat> nobody, nobody wants God to be the God that he has declared himself to be in their own power. They don't come to that desire. They may seek things from God that they can't produce or that they're in a corner but they're not seeking God to be God in all of his glory. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He's a modern theologian. Of course, it just passed away <clears throat> recently. It says, we see people searching desperately for peace of mind, relief from guilt, meaning and purpose to their lives, loving acceptance, and we know that ultimately these things can only be found in God. Therefore, we conclude that since people are seeking these things, they must be seeking after God. But people don't seek God, they seek after the benefits that only God can give them. The sin of fallen man is this, that man seeks the benefits of God while at the same time fleeing from God himself. We're not seeking God because we love him. Like a lover would pursue in the Song of Solomon, the beloved. Nobody's seeking God that way. All have turned aside, he says. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now let's start to understand this. When he says they become worthless, he's not saying people don't have value. All people have value, regardless of race or religion. <clears throat> we have value because we've been made in the image of God. The word itself is used for milk souring. So saying that men become worthless, things that we touch just deteriorate. Nothing we do lasts forever. He says, <clears throat> no one does good, not even one. Again, many of you may want to object to that. And you may want to say, no, I see a lot of people doing good things. They do good things. I, I mean, I have a neighbor who's a non-Christian. He's a good man. He's better than my, not, he's better than my Christian neighbor. And, and we think, see, yeah, people, there are people who can do good apart from, apart from God. Well, remember what he's speaking about here. He's not speaking comparatively good things. Ultimately good things. God has given us life and breath. He's given us the gifts and all the abilities we have. Have we used them for good for his glory? As Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Have we done it for the ultimate good? Or have we done it maybe for ourselves? You know, you know the, the measure of a, of a deed is weighed by the motive fueling it. I've done many good things. All the while, looking for a little bit of reward, encouragement, to be well thought of. How many good things have you done before becoming a Christian, apart from some ulterior motive for yourself? You know, Charles Spurgeon 
I tend to quote him a little, a lot of it, because he wasn't just a brilliant preacher, but a lot of his preaching is recorded and easily accessible. He tells a story. He says, once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot and decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, Here, my son, I, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. And noblemen heard of this incident and thought, Well, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what will he give to me if I give him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. No one does good for the sheer glory and love of God. He kind of sums up this fractured relationship with God in verse 18 when he says there is no fear of God in their eyes. You know, the eyes as an organ are understood to be the window of a heart. They kind of show the thought of man. They show the posture of a man's heart. What Paul, I think, is doing here is, again, he's reminding us that the evidence against us that we are under sin is that we have a fractured relationship with God. We don't even fear him. You know, the Proverbs tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but we don't fear God. It, it shows us that sin is not getting drunk or cheating on your taxes or lying to somebody. Those are sins, no doubt. But Paul's going after something more fundamental here. He's going after a posture of our soul that we're in rebellion. What sin is is ultimately rebellion against God. It's, it's a negative referendum against God. We're opposed to you, God. Now, we don't think this way. We just live our lives this way. Becky Pippert is a modern-day writer, and, and she has written about, you know, asking, why is the world so disordered? And she quotes this psychiatrist who says, the world is disordered because of theomania. You ask, what's theomania? Theomania is that we think we're God. We think we're God. He says that we want to be the playwright. We don't want to be the actor in the drama. We want to run the show. And so our, our relationship with God is fractured. And every single human person is that way, at least at one point. But the second piece of evidence he gives, this is exhibit B, if you will, the second point under this idea of evidence would be our fractured relationships with each other. Look with me at 13 through 17. And, and, and I, I want the metaphors to have the full impact on you. Because he's speaking about our fractured relationships with each other as seen in the way we speak and the way we act toward one another. And look at the, these metaphors of speech. He uses all these examples with, with the, you know, throats and tongues and, and lips and mouth. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Words are meant to heal. Words are meant to build up. That's what Paul says. 
you know, don't let anything come out of your mouth except that which is building up and, and for, to suit the purpose at hand, he says. But, but here we can use our words. Like, like th- throats are like open graves. So think about that. The, the rottenness of decaying corpses or, or, the, or the danger of the venom of an asp. Words can kill. Words can make. I mean, who here? doesn't think about things that you wish you just had not said. That they just come out of your mouth. That's evidence of being under sin. They come out of your mouth. And, and here's the irony. We say the worst things to those that we often love the most. Why? Why would we do it to them? It, it, it's evidence, Paul's saying, that all humans are under sin. But not, not just our words, but also our deeds. Look what he says there in, in 15. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths ruin a ministry. The way of peace they have not known. Of course, this varies in degree with some of you, but you see the conflict in our relationships, the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, the unreconciliation, the stepping away. I'm done with them. And you see that in our path is often much ruin and misery by the relationships. Well, I'm just going to move on. Again, Paul's saying this is evidence to us. So Paul's trying to build a case. He's charged us that we're under sin, and now he's presented evidence that we have failed to love God, and we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the evidence that he brings. Now, if if you were in the jury box, if you were just there, what would you say? Has Paul made his argument? Are these things present in our lives? Do you think that this is true? You know, I think about the, you know, e- even if you are struggling with this and you're saying, I-, I just don't think people are that bad. And you're more optimistic on life. I'm not looking to be pessimistic for me- pessimistic sake. But I-, I do find there to be an irony. Maybe you're not a Christian here. Maybe you're looking at the faith and I'm thankful that you're here. But I often find it to be an irony that, that those who want to think more optimistically about humanity, where is the evidence for that? That somehow we can extricate ourselves from being under sin. Where's the evidence? I mean, what historical or sociological or psychological, all the technological advances, have we become better? Have we overcome these issues? Now, I just heard recently, you know, if a guy flips a coin and it comes up heads one million times, every time it's heads, you begin to wonder, I think something's up. You know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. And, and yet, if we continue to sin, boom, 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 just repeat it, don't we begin to think that something might be up? We know there's something more, don't you? Don't you feel it sometime? You know, when you hear a glorious piece of music, or you see a beautiful sunset, or you see an example of sacrifice, perhaps in a movie, and and your heart is full, and you just know there's got to be something more. See, if if you're here today and you're thinking this is too much, why do you do the things you do? Why do you continue to speak in the way that you do that's hurtful? And and why do you continue in unreconciled relationship with God and, and, and man? Why? This is why we need the gospel. 
This is why we need to be born again. You know, you hear that expression, born again. It's kind of seen in a pejorative way now. But being born again is simply saying that we need a new nature. We need to be delivered from being under sin so that we can be under grace. We want to be under grace, not under sin. To be born again is God taking out. Through faith in Jesus Christ, taking out that heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh that's sensitive to God and moves through the power of the Spirit to become more and more like Christ. If you're not a Christian here, that's how you become a Christian. To seek God, to repent of sin, and to put your hope in Christ. Now, if you're a Christian here, uh, this text is helpful for us. This is where we find who we are, both outside of God and inside the family of God. You know, did you notice how Paul started the whole thing? He said, as it's written. Who, who else said that? He took that right from Jesus. As it's written, he said to Satan. And, and he just brings forth the truth. This is why we love the Bible here. This is why we read the Bible. Because God has given to us truth. We can't discern these things on our own. We need them given to us, and God has in his scriptures. So we're students of the Bible. We read the Bible, we study the Bible, and we want to learn it to live it. So we can begin to live in all the joy that God has for us. So, so we, want to, we want to say, this is true for us. This is a good, what this does is it calibrates my life. I was, I was kind of infected by a cultural understanding of this, but now I have clarity the way I ought to look at this situation. Okay, so Paul has charged us as under sin. Now, remember now, he's speaking to humanity. So I've tried to dip out for a minute and say, here, Christian, non-Christian, but he's speaking to humanity. He's saying you're charged as under guilt, you're charged as guilty under sin. He's provided evidence you failed to love God truly, and you failed to love your neighbor as yourself. And so now we have the verdict, and we see that in 19 and 20. And the verdict comes, and it's a serious verdict. It's very dark. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see this judicial language here. We're in the dock. We've got nothing to say. We are accountable. We're guilty as charged. That's the verdict. Boom. Got nothing. You don't get to bring data to the table that God somehow missed. You don't get to pull that, that secret witness that's going to blow the case wide open. We're accountable to God. He knows that we have sinned against him. We're guilty. All of us. Notice what he says though in 19. He says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I think Paul's probably speaking about the Jews here, at least initially, and he's just read the law to him, not the Mosaic law, because you saw that the scriptures in 10 to 18 were taken from different parts, not just the Mosaic law, but from the Psalms and Proverbs. And he's probably speaking to the Jews who, were, who had that divine law, and they were under that law, and they, and they broke that law, and so they are therefore guilty of it. But, but I would ask you, and there's a big theological debate about this, but I, I think it's beyond just the divine law. Because he talked in chapter 2 about the natural law. The law that's been written upon our hearts. Remember how even the Gentiles, on our consciences, we know we have a law because we judge people by the law, right? They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that. And so we have this law that God has given to us that is on the heart of every person by which we judge others and by which we have been found under and guilty. And so I think it applies. And I also say that. I think it's broad because he does say every mouth will be stopped and the whole world 
Again, we get to that comprehensive language. So we are all guilty, is what Paul's saying. Now remember, Paul's talking to the Romans. He's saying this is the need for the gospel, that we're all accountable to God, and we're guilty of it. And you see that there in verse 20 when he says, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Now again, there's some debate about works of the law, but, but I go with a traditional understanding that works of the law are those efforts that we make to find ourselves pleasing to God. It's trying to keep and observe the divine law, if you've had that, or whatever moral law that you have. But it's an effort to make peace with God through my efforts at righteousness. It's trying to make myself acceptable and pleasing to God through my efforts. And he says clearly, no one will be justified by works of the law. So, so if you're here and you just think, but I'm better than that, then, then you're flying right Contrary to this, no one. But let me read you something even more clear from Galatians. 2.16, he says this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. In other words, they're not declared innocent. They're not reconciled to God. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So he says it A, B, now he goes B, A. And then he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says the same thing three times. Get this down. You won't be justified by works of the law. Now, don't think for a minute that the law has failed, because he tells us that in the second half of 20. The law hasn't failed. The law was never given to redeem men and women from sin. The law was given to reveal the sin to men and women, that they might seek a deliverer. The law awakens us to sin. The law is a tutor, it's a guide. It's like I'm driving down some old stretch of straight Texas highway and I forgot what the speed limit is. I'm just cruising along and all of a sudden, boom, there's a, there's a speed limit sign. It says 70, I'm doing 75. Oh, I'm, I'm past the law. It reveals to us the nature of sin. But the law cannot save us. Now think about it. If this book ended on this verse, we'd be a people in trouble. We'd be accountable. Our mouths are shut. It's been revealed to us through the law. We're all guilty as charged. He charged us. He presented evidence. Boom, the verdict's been rendered. We're guilty. Thankfully, thankfully, we have more verses to read. We were right on the edge, weren't we? We were right there. The very next two words are glorious. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Oh, this is like, this is like you're drowning and the boat comes across the horizon. It's like all of a sudden now I can be helped. Paul introduces us to God as a just God, but he's a pardoning God. He's a kind God. You know that in the breath you and I are drawing right now. He's given us life. He's given us everything. He's a pardoning God. And he's given to us here this son, listen to these words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they pointed to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. We've been hearing all about that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's me, it's you. And we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
The word justify is a heavy word. It simply is this. Justification is an act of God where based upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he declares us innocent because Christ himself has come and he has lived according to the law. He loved God perfectly. He loved the neighbor perfectly. He lived an actively righteous life, but he also died for us. He bore our sin and bore the wrath of God. We call that an active righteousness and a passive righteousness. You kind of see it wrapped up in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is it. But it's through faith in Christ. That's why this scripture is so important. It shows us that God has unmasked sin. And we get to see it in all of its ugliness, and we want to. This is to our advantage to see our sin so that we can see a Savior. May God have mercy on those who do not think they sin. They'll never look. They'll be carrying cancer in their body, but they feel fine. They'll never go to the doctor. But it has been, for the Christian, it has been unmasked. You know this now. And so the words of Jesus at the beginning of Sermon on the Mount when he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the gateway to the sermon. It's the gateway to the kingdom. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It doesn't speak about a material poverty. I don't believe it. It's a spiritual poverty. I've got nothing. All I have is need and I have sin. That's what I'm bringing to the table for this transaction. I, I have need and I have sin. And I bring that, I'm invited by God. We are invited to God to bring that, and he will bring forgiveness. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. You're picking up that burden language from under sin. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. I'll give you forgiveness for your sins. But we have to appeal to Christ by faith. No longer trusting in our righteousness and our righteous deeds. We have to let those go. And we have to put all of our trust, the security of our soul in Christ alone, who has the power to save. Because when God saw the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And those with him, God will say, you are my beloved Son, you're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased because of Christ. So this is a, it's a hard passage to preach. It's a hard passage to hear. But there's hope for us. There's a pardon in God that sits on that bench who grants forgiveness to those who repent by faith. If you're not a Christian here, I would appeal to you. There comes a day that this will not be a TV show. This is the real deal. That we will stand before God. And I appeal to you to consider the nature of your sin and how you've tried to stop and change in yourself through personal reformation, and it has failed. I ask you to consider Christ and his offer of salvation through faith. And for the Christian here, boy, can we rejoice? I mean, do we have a pardon in God that has furnished one for us that has satisfied that God is both just and that sin's punished, but he's our justifier Christ. Let's rejoice. I mean, can we be marked by a people of gratitude, happiness, joy? 
to know that today, if you step out of this church and the Lord draws you to himself, you have an advocate. You have the Lion of Judah. You have the, the Lamb of God who will step forward and will be your advocate before the Father on that day. We have much to be thankful for. Let's take a minute and let this word change us. Ask God. If you are convicted here, then seek God for comfort. If you have been too long comforted, then pray for conviction. But may we ask God to let this work form and change us into the people that he wants us to be. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.